Have you ever wondered how theology, apologetics, and real life come together? Join Pastor Brandon as he covers these topics in his series titled Life's Big Questions. Here's Pastor Brandon. I really have appreciated just the last couple of weeks, I think, our focus on the ministry of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And these are among some of the most encouraging truths of our faith, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so I kind of want to just begin where I left off last Wednesday night. <clears throat> now, your, your study guide tonight, the only thing that I changed about your study guide tonight versus last Wednesday night is the date. Okay? So <laughs> if it seems strangely familiar to you and you were here last Wednesday night, then it's because it is. And I got about halfway through it, so that's why it's the same. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I do want us to return to the subject of of the, the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit, and what's his unique ministry in our lives, and why is it important that we know it? You know, so just by way of introduction, there are pneumatology is the word that describes the theology of the Holy Spirit, and I've told you, you know, the Holy Spirit's not a doctrine, the Holy Spirit's a person, and yet the study of this particular person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit's pneumatology, and that word pneuma means wind or spirit. That's the Greek word for spirit. And understanding the ministry of the spirit is important to every person who's trusted Christ. It should be important because really this is um, the reality of the spirit. It's the spirit who makes the truth of Christianity, the truth of the gospel, experiential in our lives. And it's the spirit who's come to take up residence in our hearts and lives as believers in Jesus. So really, this is basic to Christian living. In order for you to understand the Christian life, you've got to understand the person of the Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who lives in you and through you. And so listen to me very carefully. Christianity is not imitation of the life of Jesus. Christianity is participation in the life of Jesus. And there's a fundamental difference there. You're not a Christian by imitating Jesus. Okay? You're a Christian because by faith you've come to trust in Jesus. And as such, you have been born again, and now you're a partaker of his life. And it's his spirit who's come to live in you and live through you as a believer. I don't know if you remember some months back, but I preached from Romans 6 and 7. And... Uh, Anyway, in those chapters, those are important chapters, 6, 7, and 8, about the nature of the Christian life as it relates to uh, what it means to really be a Christian. And all throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he referred to believers, you know, Paul didn't, you know, he didn't address his letters to, uh, to Christians, but to those who are in Christ. So his description of believers in the New Testament epistles it's those who are in Christ. And so that's what it means to be a Christian. It's to be in Christ. And it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so that's why this study of the person and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit is so very vital and important to our Christian experience. Now, just by way of quick review, we've looked at the person of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he is a person. He's not a force. We don't refer to the Holy Spirit in terms of it like it's an impersonal force, but him. He is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. And he's real, 
divine and unique. There's a real person, divine person, and unique person. And then we spent some time looking at the symbols of the Spirit. There are various symbols that are mentioned there in Scripture that point to the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, sort of illustrate who he is and what he's come to do. Uh, Eight of these, there are eight of these throughout Scripture, word pictures that really illustrate his ministry. Uh, You've got that of clothing. Jesus told his disciples that they would be clothed with power after the Holy Spirit has come. So the language there is that of... of, of, um, Garments of power, the Spirit's come upon us to empower us as Christ's witnesses. The symbol of the dove, you see that symbol there in the baptism of Jesus, those stories like in Matthew chapter 3, where the Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and a dove is symbolic of righteousness. Fire, you see fire often associated with the presence of God. You see this imagery at Pentecost. Oil, both priests and kings in the Old Testament were described as being anointed with oil. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that you know, we're anointed in the Spirit, set apart in the Spirit. A pledge, a seal, water in John chapter 7. Jesus said that the Spirit would come and it would be like having an artesian well in you as a person, as a believer. And so, again, it's the life of God that's come to take up residence in your heart and life as a person. An artesian well springing up. And then wind, John chapter 3, the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, the Spirit is described in terms of being like wind, okay? So those are the symbols, so the person, the work of the, uh, the person, the symbols of the Spirit, and then the work of the Spirit. This is where we've been at least the last couple of Wednesday nights. Uh, what is it specifically that the Holy Spirit uh, does? How is his ministry unique? And what has he come to do? Well, a few things that we've looked at already. He unites the believer to Christ. It's the Spirit who unites believers to the body of Christ. And you remember we talked about the difference of uh, the baptism of the Spirit versus being filled with the Spirit. And the baptism of the Spirit is that which happens. It's a one-time act by which a person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are immersed into the life of God. And the Spirit comes to take up residence in your heart and life the moment that you get saved. So don't think of the baptism of the Spirit as being that which you need to seek beyond salvation. It's something that happened to you when you got saved. And so it's important that you understand that. Now being filled with the Spirit is something totally different. Okay? Uh, The baptism of the Spirit, and here's a simple way to remember this. I think it's very helpful. The baptism of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is now resident in my life as a believer. But the filling of the Holy Spirit means that he is president of my life as a believer. You understand? So uh, I've been immersed into, been brought into the body of Christ. The filling of the Spirit means that now my body belongs to the Lord and I'm to be controlled in every way by Him and under His direction and command. So the Spirit unites the believer to Christ. 
The Spirit then enables us in our everyday walk. Again, being filled with the Spirit. Uh, it, this means that I need, the, I need the power of God to live the Christian life. God's not expected, he doesn't expect you to live the Christian life in your own strength or effort. But he's given you his spirit to empower your obedience and to enable your walk, to empower your witness. And so Jesus addressed all of this in those chapters in John, John chapter 14, John 15, John 16, and said that the, the spirit would come and he would be our resident helper. Uh, he would be the one who would come to empower us in every way as far as the Christian life is concerned. Okay, so he enables us in our walk. A third thing about his work or his ministry is that the Spirit glorifies the Son of God. All right, keep in mind that this is the primary role of the Spirit. He's to keep the spotlight on the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus. Uh, J.I. Packer said that the Holy Spirit has a floodlight ministry. And it's really his responsibility to keep the spotlight on where the spotlight ought to be. It's on Jesus. Jesus said that the Spirit would glorify me. You know, I gave you that illustration a couple weeks back of the Washington Monument. You know, at nighttime, if you're driving up 395 in the D.C. metro area, and you look and you see that tall... Uh, I mean, ivory white monument glowing in the night sky. And it's because there are hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of floodlights that are shining up on that thing. And so nobody, though, ever wants to go take a picture of the floodlight. Everybody looks at the monument at night as it's lit up, and you don't even think about the floodlight that's there. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has come to testify of Christ, to point to Christ. And that's why a spirit-filled believer will be a person who is constantly pointing other people to Jesus. This is the ministry of the Spirit in your life as a Christian. Remember what Jesus said that the Spirit would come to do in the disciples' lives. He said, after the Spirit's come, you'll be my witnesses. So as a result of them being spirit-filled, Everywhere they would go, they would be witnesses for Christ and point other people to place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. So a spirit-filled Christian is not the person who walks around telling you how spirit-filled they are, talking about the Holy Spirit this and the Holy Spirit that. A spirit-filled Christian is somebody who's going to be pointing other people to Jesus Christ, someone who's going to be sharing the truth of Jesus Christ, someone who's going to be communicating the gospel with their life and their lips, Okay? Now, here's where we'll camp out, okay? How the Spirit applies the work of redemption, All right? When we're considering the work of the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit who applies the work, the saving work of Jesus Christ to your personal life as a believer. So again, in addition to this question, who is the Holy Spirit, what does he do? Think about this question, how can I know for sure that I'm saved, and can I lose my salvation? So you don't realize this, but those questions are directly related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who applies the saving work of Christ to your life as an individual believer. And there are a lot of Christians who are often insecure with regard to their personal salvation. Maybe it's because they're not saved, and it's the Spirit prompting their heart that they're not saved, convicting them, 
Or maybe it's because they fear that they'll do something that will cause them to lose their salvation. And I've talked to a lot of, of, of men and women in the church who've come for counseling at times, at various points or another, and have said, you know, I'm just so afraid that I can do something to lose my salvation. And I want to show you tonight that it's, you have security, eternal security, with regard to your salvation because it's the power of the Spirit at work in your life as a believer, applying the saving work of Jesus Christ to you. And I'm going to show you that tonight, okay? So again, a true child of God can never lose his or her sonship. We can fall out of fellowship, but sonship, that's a matter of eternal security. Once you're born again into the family of God, you are always a child of God. Somebody say amen on a Wednesday night. Because that's good news. Now, sin in my life and your life causes me to fall out of fellowship. And yet the Spirit will work in your life as a believer to make you aware of the fact that, you know something? Deal with this in your life. Because you're not moving forward in your faith and your growth as a, as a child of God as far as fellowship goes until this issue gets settled in your life. So how does the Holy Spirit apply the work of redemption? Well, we considered how he convicts. And so we pretty much got this far last Wednesday night. We talked about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You know, apart from God's intervention in a person's life, a person's lost. A person's in the dark. A person needs God to do something in their heart and life to wake them up to the reality of their spiritual deadness and the fact that they're living their life in spiritual darkness. And so Jesus said that that's the unique role of the Spirit. All right, look at John 16 there in your Bible. Go back to this text. We were there last Wednesday night, but go back to it. John chapter 16. You look at verse 7, again, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And that's exactly what happened at Pentecost. But now look at verse 8. Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So three ways that the convicting work of the Spirit is evident in our lives. He works to convict us of sin. That is, the Spirit convicts us of what's wrong, what's not in keeping with the character and the nature and the law of God. He works to expose that in a person's life. Okay? Um, and then righteousness. He works to convict us in the area of righteousness to open our eyes to the beauty of Christ and see Jesus Christ as the standard of righteousness and the fact that Jesus Christ is the only hope of righteousness for any of us. It's the Spirit who works in a person's heart to convict them of sin and to convict them in the area of righteousness, to open their eyes to their need for Christ's true righteousness, to be credited to their account. And then judgment. You know, he works to convict the world of judgment, judgment that's, that's coming. The fact that all of us are accountable to Almighty God. 
And so the Spirit brings conviction in these three areas. And then Jesus elaborates there in verse 9. He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now think about this. You think about sin, I guarantee you the first thing that comes to your mind, it's plural, sins. You probably think of various sins. Let me tell you, sins are only the symptom. Sin is the root problem. And sin expressed simply is unbelief. It's unbelief. And that's what Jesus is saying there concerning sin because they don't believe in me. And so it's the Spirit who brings conviction of sin and exposes unbelief. And then concerning righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. All right, so the Spirit works to, convi- uh, to convict. Uh, that word that's used there, con- convict, it's closely related to the word convince. So when you think about conviction of something, it's, it's being convinced of something. All right, when we say that a person has conviction, uh, we're talking about somebody who's convinced of something that's true, Right? Well, when the Spirit works conviction in a person's heart and life, it means that the Spirit is convincing that person about what's right, what's wrong, what's true. Uh, Convinces them of their need for Jesus. Convinces them of their need for salvation and forgiveness. So he convinces us in these critical areas, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, now... Let's move to the second thing as far as the Spirit's role in applying the work of redemption. Not only does the Spirit convict us of our sins, but it's the Spirit who regenerates. Uh, Someone says, well, what does it mean, regenerate? Well, think about this. Um, Give life. Uh, Big fancy word in theology is regeneration which just simply is a theological word to describe the new birth, right? Salvation is a new birth. Isn't that what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3? You know, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he wants to know, you know, how does, you know, what's the kingdom like? How does a person, uh, you know, enter the kingdom and that kind of thing? And Jesus says, listen, except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom. Uh, That means being born from above. The idea is unless the regenerating life of the Spirit of God is is working in you to bring you, to make you alive, then you're going to be dead. So regeneration then is the new birth, and this is the role of the Spirit. So it describes the work of the Spirit of God whereby the Spirit imparts the life of God to the person who trusts in Jesus Christ. All right? And again, John chapter 3 is the go-to passage if you want to see Jesus talk about this very thing. All right? He says, unless one's born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Someone says, well, what does he mean by that, being born of water and the Spirit? Well, unless you've got to have a physical birth, but you've also got to have a spiritual birth. Being born again. And so salvation then is a spiritual birth that's brought about by the power of the Spirit of God uh, in your life. Charles Ryrie, great theologian, said this. He said, a proper concept of sin 
and its ravages reinforces the conclusion that regeneration must be of God and can't be accomplished by man. Thus, the means of regeneration is the spirits effecting the new birth. And he does this in those who believe in Jesus Christ. All right, you're made alive in Jesus Christ. That's what regeneration is. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to get into a little bit of some hairy territory tonight, okay? All right, let's get into some hairy territory because some of y'all way back when turned in some questions about Calvinism and Arminianism and all this stuff, okay? Questions of salvation and election and predestination and all of that. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I'm going to deal with just specifically regeneration. When does this take place in the life of a believer? All right, so... I'm going to draw me a creek up here on the marker board. You tracking with me? All right, here's my creek. Let me just put me some little, little wave, little you know, rocks and such in. Here's my creek. Yeah, yeah, that's the creek. Okay, it's not a snake, it's a creek. All right, now, now think about this, okay? You, you have had two veins of thought. Post-Reformation, even pre-Reformation, you had this, but Calvinism, John Calvin, the teachings of Calvin was a reformer in Geneva. But let's just say you've got, on this side of the creek, let's say we've got the Calvinist bank. And the Calvinist side of the creek says that regeneration happens before saving faith. It's the work of the Spirit in a person's life. Regeneration ha- happens prior to saving faith being expressed. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made you alive together in Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, on the Arminian side of the creek, on the Arminian side of the creek, you've got, you know, the Wesleyan-Arminian argument you know, uh, following Jacob Arminius and John Wesley, who held to this type of understanding that regeneration follows saving faith. It's only after a person expresses saving faith then that they're born from above. They're born again, and regeneration follows saving faith. Now, let's just go ahead and let me just tell you, we got people uh, in our church that would be on both sides of the creek. Uh, There are... Men that I respect as far as Christian theologians who've been on both sides of the creek. Uh, Spurgeon would be on this side of the creek. Obviously, Calvin would be on this side of the creek. Before them, Augustine would have been on this side of the creek. On this side of the creek, you've got guys like John Wesley. Uh, You probably have, I think, D.L. Moody would be on this side of the creek. And people say, well, preacher, where in the world are you? I'm going to tell you. I'm in the creek. (laughs) Right? I'm in the creek. Because let me just tell you something. Uh, I think we, with our finite minds, we're trying to comprehend the infinite. And folks, you read scripture, salvation is all of God, but it also, man is responsible to believe. And yet somehow, in the mystery of God's providence and all of this, I'm not going to take any position on either side of the creek. I'm just going to say that somehow in the mystery of God, 
Perhaps it all happened simultaneously. You know, and so where there are passages of Scripture where election and, and, and divine sovereignty are in the text, I'm going to preach it like a wild man. But then you get to passages where it says, whosoever will let him come. I'm going to preach it like a wild man. Whosoever will. Because I'm a whosoever will. You're a whosoever will. And yet the beauty of salvation is that we know that, you know what? This is the result of God's activity in our lives as believers. We've been born again. I can't get the credit for that. You can't get the credit for that. God alone deserves the glory for that, doesn't he? So Christians are not those who walk around patting themselves on the back for something they did to secure their own salvation. No, those who've been born again are those who thank God for the new birth and the miracle of the new birth. Okay, now I know that's not going to, that's not going to really, uh, all that's going to do is make everybody mad, but that's where I'm at. But regeneration is, is the work of God to bring new life to the believer in Jesus Christ. So, he convicts, he regenerates. In the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I'm going to say about that. But what about this? He indwells. He indwells. Um, this is so good. The Spirit of God comes to live within the believer. Through the new birth, believers have been made alive. You've been given the life of God. The Spirit gives a Christian a brand new nature, a brand new you. It's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Yet not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. My old self, who I was in Adam, has died, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ. But now I've been risen with Christ and I'm seated in heavenly places with Christ. The Spirit has come to indwell me. And he says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's the indwelling Spirit of God who enables you to live as a believer. So think about this. That your salvation is a work of God in his grace and in his mercy, convicting you of your sins, regenerating you as you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, indwelling you now you're the temple of the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in your heart and life but then it gets even better because the spirit then sanctifies so the man or woman who's saved indwelt by the spirit uh, empowered by the spirit the Spirit is at work in his or her life to conform him or her to the image of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, listen, though this involves your cooperation as a believer, this is entirely the work of the Spirit. And he uses a variety of things. Uh, he uses circumstances. You know, there is no such thing as, as perhaps an unforeseen circumstance in your life as far as God is concerned. Now, there are things that take you by surprise, curveballs that I get thrown in life, that we all get thrown in life, but it doesn't take God by surprise, and you can rest assured that because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life, God has a purpose behind it, that somehow, in some way, to some degree, the Spirit of God wants to use it 
for his glory, for Christ's glory, and ultimately for your own benefit as a believer, as a person. So he uses circumstances. He uses his word. I've told you this before. You know, if you're a person that you know that the Spirit has got to work patience in you because you're impatient. All of us get impatient. Then don't be surprised when he allows some people that just get on your patience and get on your last nerve to be in your life. (laughs) Right? I think sometimes we say, well, Lord, we just want you to do, you just drop out of heaven and just give us perfect patience and that kind of thing. Well, don't be surprised when he puts people in your life that test your patience because it's through that process that the Spirit is building the patience of Christ into your life. So sanctification, all right? So, you know, again, Paul talks about what sanctification involves in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And he talks about how sin, now that you're saved, sin, uh, like a deposed monarch, it no longer reigns over you, but its presence remains in you. And that's why Christians are not perfect people. We're saved people. We're people who are being perfected. You're free from the grip of sin, but you know that it's still there in that unredeemed part of your humanity or your flesh. And so in Romans 6 and 7, Paul talks about how, you know, sin no longer rules over him, but it sort of finds its residual uh, remaining dwelling in his flesh and will be that way until he's raptured or taken on to glory. Paul deals with this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, well, how do you deal with that that sin, remaining sin, the presence of sin in your life as a believer? Listen to this, Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Because he's sanctifying. But walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Have you ever felt that tension in your life as a Christian? All of us have. All of us have. You know, at the end of Romans 7, Paul cries out and, you know, you hear this, this, this cry of, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. He's talking about that struggle, just that inner sense of struggle and tug of war that he feels. But he says, I thank God who gives me victory in Jesus Christ. (laughs) And then you get into Romans chapter 8, and you know that he mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times in Romans chapter 8 alone. You want to put that in perspective? He only mentions the Holy Spirit 13 times in the other 15 chapters of the book of Romans, but he mentions him 20 times in chapter 8 alone. Listen, go read Romans chapter 8 when you get home tonight, before you go to bed tonight, and I guarantee you'll have a shouting fit right there beside your bed when you realize the unlimited power that is yours through the Spirit of God who lives in you as a believer. And then Paul closes Romans 8 with this great anthem of praise. What's going to separate me from the love of God? (laughs) Nothing, no one. So the Spirit sanctifies the Spirit secures. All right, so let's, let's deal with the question, can I lose my salvation? And the answer is, no, you can't. 
You are eternally secure. Now, let me tell you something. You go back to this Arminian side of the creek here. You know, there are different doctrines that are seen in different ways by those on both sides of the creek. But as far as eternal security, there are a lot of those who come from this Wesleyan Arminian background where they've been under the impression most of their Christian life that they can lose their salvation. You can sin, you can walk away from it, you can forfeit it, give it up, you can lose it. To which I say, if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. Because you're not strong enough to save yourself, you're not strong enough to keep yourself saved. For that, you need the power of the risen Jesus and the power of the Spirit of God. And I want to show you from Scripture tonight how this is what the Bible actually teaches. Now, let me tell you, I got their well-meaning friends. I've got some well-meaning friends, again, on this side of the creek. And, you know, a lot of the argument that I hear from those on that side of the creek is, well, you know, that once saved, always saved doctrine that you Baptists preach and teach, especially those of you from the Calvinist side of the creek, you know, if a person really believed that, then I'd just go out and sin as much as I wanted to. You ever heard anybody say that and use, use that as an excuse to just sin as much as you want to? But see, that person totally misunderstands salvation and what God did in you by way of the new birth. God put his spirit inside of you, and the spirit of God don't want anything to do with sin. Amen. So if the new birth has taken place in the first place, you're going to have new wants and new desires. You're still going to wrestle with sin, but you're not going to want to wrestle with sin. You're going to wrestle with it, but you're not going to wallow in it and love it like a pig loves slop. You understand? Because the new birth has taken place. And so for the person then who says, well, I prayed a prayer when I was young and, you know, everything's okay between me and God, and yet there's no lifestyle change and there's been no uh, inward love change and that kind of thing, then listen, that person has every reason in the world to question whether or not they've ever been born again. Because when Jesus saves a person, he changes a person. And the spirit inside of a person, he's the spirit of truth that will not delight in sin, that will not wallow in sin, but instead will delight in the law of the Lord. I told y'all this was some heavy stuff tonight, but it's good. It's a good reminder, isn't it? Amen. So, knowing for sure then that you are saved. This is, the, this is a work of the Spirit of God in your life as far as eternal security and assurance of salvation is concerned. This is something the Spirit communicates to your spirit. In fact, go to Romans chapter 8 with me. Again, just if you want to go through Romans 8, circle, circle the word spirit every time you find it there in Romans 8. This is a remarkable chapter that talks about the life that you've been given in the spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
This is Paul's way of saying here, listen, when, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, when you got saved, the Spirit came to live within you, God gave you a new heart. And that heart delights in obedience. And that heart delights in the truth. And it's the Spirit of God who's come to live within you. And the righteous fulfillment of the law has been fulfilled in you. Those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh. The world lives for what the world lives for. There ought to be a difference, though, in the life of the person who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. We live for something totally different. What's the world live for? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life. All of this characterizes the world. But that's not characteristic of a, of a child of God anymore. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How is it that we deal with sin in our lives as believers? Through the power of the Spirit. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. You rely upon that power that God put in you. You realize who you've been made to be? In Jesus Christ, you realize what you have in the Spirit of Christ who lives in you? Power like you can't believe, like you can't even imagine. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now listen to this. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's exactly where a lot of people live who think they can lose their salvation. Spirit of slavery and fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now look at verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. <laughs> That's what he does. It's his work. It's his ministry. It's his role in your life as a believer to constantly communicate the truth of who you are in Christ to your heart as a believer. When doubt plagues you, when you sin, and you're grieved, you know, you can grieve the Spirit. And grieving the Spirit is when we sin intentionally as believers. We grieve the Spirit. But that doesn't mean we lose our relationship. It doesn't mean that we forfeit our salvation. It doesn't mean that it's dependent and it's incumbent upon us to maintain our salvation. No. It's Jesus who does that. So it's not so much, your, your security then, it's not so much dependent upon your ability to hold on to God, but it's, it's his ability to hold on to you. <laughs> when I was a kid, we used to go up on Table Rock Mountain every, uh, every Labor Day. 
don't know if you know anything about Burke County, North Carolina, but you know, you got the Linville Gorge Wilderness and the Linville River and all of that. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Table Rock Mountain in Hawksbill, right across from it, you can sort of see it, and it fills up all the Catawba Valley. If you're driving up I-40 and you're going through Burke County, you can look up, especially as you get closer to Lake James and Marion, you can look up and you can see Table Rock. It's just that, that, you know, that weird square-shaped mountain before you get to Marion. Well, we would always go up there on Labor Day, and we'd have a picnic, and then we would hike the trail up to Table Rock, to the top of the rock. Now, those, th- those cliffs up there are really, really steep. There are a lot of people that do you know, rock climbing and all that. They come from all over the country to rock climb up there. So you can imagine the cliffs are very, very steep. The trail, there are places when you're ramping around that, that rock to get to the top of the rock, the trail is pretty narrow and steep, and you could tumble off. Well, when I was a little boy and I was with my daddy, we'd be walking around those trails and walking around Table Rock Mountain, and uh, daddy would have me by the hand. He'd have me by the hand. And there were places around the side of that rock, I'll be honest, it scared me as a little kid. And so I was holding on to daddy's hand as tight as I could. But you know something? That wasn't my security. (laughs) It's because daddy's hand was holding on to my hand as tight as he could. That's where my security came from. And in your life as a believer, it's God who's holding on to you. When you feel like, Oh, God, help me hold on. I feel like I can't hold on. I feel like I can't maintain this thing. I'm wrestling with sin in my life. Oh, listen, know that it's God who's holding on to you. And that is the basis of your confidence as a Christian. Eternal security. The fact that our daddy's got us by the hand. Better than that, he's carrying us every step of the way. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through faith in him. Why? Because he ever lives to intercede for his own. Means that you're just as saved as Jesus is. Everything that's true of him has become true of you as a believer. This is the remarkable truth of our salvation. That's why Jesus said this in John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given to me, I lose nothing. But I raise it up at the last day. He said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. It's eternal life. If you could lose it and forfeit it, it'd be temporal life. But it's eternal I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So this is good news here. You're saved because he's got you. He's holding on to you and the spirit communicates this to your heart as a believer. One final thing though is that he seals He seals. You don't have to turn there, but in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul says that those who believe the gospel, those who've been saved, they receive the Spirit as a seal. And you know what happens when something is sealed, don't you? What does it mean when something is sealed? (laughs) Listen, it's kept for keeps. When something is sealed, it's secure. You're sealed until the day of redemption. 
When Jesus comes for you or you die and go to be with him, you're sealed and you're safe. That word seal, used in Ephesians chapter one, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and you believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance. That word seal meant to stamp ownership on something, kind of like branding cattle, you know? Uh, when you come to Jesus, he sets his seal on you by sending the Spirit to live within you, and it's the seal of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who locks you into the family of God, and you're kept secure. And then, in addition to that, Paul says he's not just the seal, but he's the guarantee. He's the down payment. Down payment. You know what a down payment is on something? You ever had to make a down payment on something in order to get it? You ever put anything on layaway? You know, the Spirit's been given as the down payment. And, and it's the guarantee of all that you have in store for your future as a believer. Folks, do you realize all that's true of us in Jesus Christ? The, seal, the Spirit within us is the down payment of what we have to look forward to in heaven. And it's the power of the Spirit who's going to keep us safe and secure until we arrive. So this is why I'm telling you, this is some of the most encouraging truth I think that you will ever study as far as your Christian life is concerned, the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's important that you understand your security, the assurance of your salvation, eternal security. I read where during the building of the Golden Gate Bridge um, over the San Francisco Bay, You've seen the pictures. Some of you have been there. You've crossed it. But when that was being built, construction got behind schedule. I mean, it fell behind something awful because several of the workers had accidentally fallen from the scaffolding to their deaths. And so engineers really could find no solution to all of the costly delays that was keeping the bridge from, from being built. And so finally, somebody had the bright idea that they come up with this gigantic net that be hung beneath the bridge to catch any that might fall from the scaffolding. Well, it was an enormous cost that they didn't build in originally to the project, but the engineers opted to go that route. And so once that net was installed, from that point forward, progress was hardly interrupted at all. A worker or two fell from the scaffolding, but they fell into the net and they were saved. And so the workers then were able to work with confidence because there was a net there. Uh, and listen, God has given us a safety net, as it were, that will bring us security and confidence as we live life. And it's the Holy Spirit who's come to live within us. That's why you're free to serve God. That's why you're free to exercise your spiritual gifts. Knowing that you're secure in Christ and you're forgiven and you're accepted by God in Jesus Christ. This is what pursues you to serve God with a heart full of love and to serve the body, to share the, your faith with others. Aren't you grateful for the precious ministry of the Spirit? Our Father, in Jesus' name, we pray tonight and we thank you Lord, for these wonderful truths of the person and work of the Spirit. And Lord, as far as salvation 
and your sovereignty in the matter and all of this, things that we can't understand with our little finite minds, Lord, we trust. We believe. Thank you for the new birth. Thank you for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, for the regenerating power of the Spirit whereby you've brought us to life in Christ and the life of God is within us as believers. Thank you that you're keeping us secure, Lord. It's not so much our assurance doesn't come so much by our holding on to you, but you're holding on to us. So, Lord, may you minister through us however you see fit this week as we have opportunities, Lord, to share our faith. Uh, Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.